You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is Mr. Willie Wu, who's a renowned investor and trader in the Bitcoin space. In addition to that, Willie has some incredible analysis for on-chain data and overall metrics that have become staples for assessing bull and bear trends. On today's show, we talk about many of those metrics and Willie's overall sentiment for what's to come in the following quarters. So without further delay, here's my conversation with the one and only Mr. Willie Wu. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by the Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right. So like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Willie Wu. Willie, welcome back to the show. Hey, Preston. Great to be back. All-time highs, though, no least. All-time highs. This is rare air and getting very exciting. Hey, so I interviewed uh, Plan B last week, and the thing that, that I really captured from the conversation with him, and, and of course, all the questions that people had for you on Twitter relate back to this cycle that we're currently in, and is it the last cycle? And Plan B last week, we were kind of having a detailed conversation about that idea, and the thing that he brought up that I thought was a really interesting point was he was saying that when we look at the various stock to flow levels of these various assets, and he's looking at where Bitcoin is on this cycle and where it's going to go in the cycle after, after we go through another halving event and how it steps up to a much higher stock to flow than where we're at in the current cycle. And he's, he's comparing it to real estate. His argument is real estate still has a higher stock to flow. And real estate is something that everybody on the planet naturally understands just because it's something that's tangible. It's something they're familiar with. And maybe that's why it might take longer because most people that are trying to preserve their buying power, they're stuffing it into scarce things like real estate and bidding those types of prices before maybe they, they go all in with Bitcoin. I'm curious to hear your point of view, because I know that you have been on the, on the podcast circuit for you know maybe half the last half year saying that you think that there's a potential for this to be the final cycle. Yeah, the stock to flow, sure, its numbers are based on the halvening and on that four year. But if you were to um, kind of take the overall picture, uh, it's essentially using the scarcity metric of this asset to value it. And of course, that scarcity is changing it's changing every day, and, and most predominantly, it's, it's changing every four-year halvening. And it's stepwise, right? But like, if you zoom out, it's just like if you pick a level at any point, and this is the scarcity of the asset, and this is the, the, um, the price level that it predicts, right? So it's, it's kind of second order. It's like a second order influence, the, the four-year thing. It's really the, the, scarcity, the scarcity at any time in that zone that I think like it, it measures or it, it tries to predict. And it's not a demand and supply model, right? It's a scarcity model. You look at it and it's the scarcity. So when we look at um, like a lot of what I do is look at the demand and supply. From looking at that, those numbers and just on a back of the envelope kind of scribble of numbers, you can see that the, the dynamics change. It's like we used to have supply coming in from the miners, which we still do, but that's changed because now in 2020 onwards, we've got a much more sophisticated, complex ecosystem. Miners are now not selling their coins. They're becoming public companies. They're, they're raising through capital markets to hodl their coins because their investors want to be exposed to the asset, not have it you know, sold. So that's changing. Willie, when did you see that transition really kind of play out? At the start of 2021, would you say that the miners are now just taking out fiat loans? Yeah. I think so. I think with Michael Saylor popularizing the idea of Bitcoin as an investable asset class within um, investors inside the equity markets, I think that's opened the door. And you know, just looking at the filing numbers and the reports, it looks like... Um, that started to happen in 2018, the first kind of companies that were listing, maybe even before that. But yeah, so there's that side of it. And that's just on the mining, the mining. The only thing we used to look at was the mining, which was a supply, which is, so that supply is slowly reducing. 
out and deviating off what the, the halvening um, would suggest. But then you've got this other side of things, which is other supply coming in from sell pressure from exchanges, right? So, for example, now we've got very, very um, high volume futures exchanges, and they generate masses, billions and billions of dollars in fees. And um, some of that will be sold into, into cash because I'm generating it with, within crypto. They're making Bitcoin as their fee, and then they, they sell some of it because they've got operational costs. So that's a new supply. And if you were to take those numbers, um, I was talking to an OTC, one of the larger um, desks, and obviously I've got more information because they, they handle some of these trades. That sell pressure is like 30% higher than the theoretical max of the 900 Bitcoins per day is being mined. This so, is for the ETF that you're talking right now. No, this is just the current Binance's FTX BitMEXs of this world. Wow. Right. That is already significant, probably over two times more sell pressure than, than the miners selling. Right. And then you take the ETF, right. And you take um, not even with the latest ETF that's been, you know, accepted by the SEC, but we take the grayscale, which holds 650,000 bitcoins in its, in its trust. That charges a 2% fee, and you can look at it. It's, since the um, premium's gone negative on it, like it hasn't added new coins into that trust. So you can actually see it slowly dropping in coins under man- management, and that's from their 2% fee being deducted off it and sold. And that is already 4% of the theoretical max of the mining network, right? So now you've got another 4% that on top of the exchanges, and then you've got this now futures ETF. And the futures ETF is like another thing which is extracting fees and selling. Effectively, it, it looks like a, a sell pressure because if an investor comes in and buys, say, a million dollars of Bitcoin, if they go through a futures ETF, maybe they take and buy a million dollars of futures long contracts. So then the futures long contracts increases in premium above the spot. And you call that contango. Contango runs away and gets bigger and bigger. And so that creates an incentive for like a hedge fund, a delta neutral trading fund, which says, okay, I'm going to buy the spot since the futures ETF is not doing it. I'm going to buy it as the, the proxy to hold it. And then they'll sell the futures to, to bring that contango down because I was incentivized. And these guys will make, you know, we saw this in early, early, this, early part of this year, they were making like 20 to 40% yield on their cash and carry trade, you know, hold the spot, sell the futures. And like the futures ETF is really incentivizing more of that to happen. So that guy that put in a million dollars to buy Bitcoin in the futures ETF only be getting 800,000, 700,000, 600,000 Bitcoin spot exposure through that. And the hedge fund and all the guys in the middle that are um, taking the yield out of it is really extracting the the final um, value. And remember, this is an annual cost to hold it. So... That effectively is a sell pressure because what was bought was not bought spot. You're only buying a fraction of it. The rest goes to profit and fees. So now we've got like much bigger sell pressures than miners. And miners are minor. Miners are the minor sell pressure. No pun intended. So like it just does not look like the same dynamics where we had this pristine, simple demand and supply within this network. Now we've got the full complexity of um, you know, a new financial system with derivative markets and so forth. So, and you'll see it in the chart with, it's ever since um, derivatives came on board with BitMEX really starting to ramp up volume in 2018, you can see that the, the shape of the chart's completely different. Gone are the parabolics, huge wicks, big ups and downs, sheer verticals, and it's choppy over, you know, and can be, we can have like three months of down and then we have three months of sideways, and then we might have a really hard run. And then it's, it's just weird compared to what maybe an OG would have um, gotten used to over the you know, 2010 to 2017, first seven years of Bitcoin. We're in a different era, and you can see it in the price chart. And so I don't think that we're going to have the same four-year cycle if you were to think the end of the four-year cycle is a one-year bear market. Like a one-year bear market, an eight percent pullback. I think that that's gone. I think a lot of the FOMO gets hit on its head because you've got sell pressure coming from all of these new players, um, and then the underlying demand can push it up in a rally again. And then 
it's kind of um it's good news in that we won't if i'm right have to wait through one year of of 85 fullback and so if you were to zoom out um i think we just the chart looks like a random walk tool saturation whatever valuation that is you know if, if it's 100 trillion like plan b um thinks then it's a random walk up down up down up down you know and that doesn't just invalidate the stock to flow right it's not a demand and supply model which is what i'm talking to here stock to flow just puts a number on it and says that's how much this network is valued next to real estate next to gold next to silver and these other assets based on their scarcity so willie when when you're saying all that which was quite profound all the different angles that you're thinking about and you're seeing just through the raw data from a net basis do you think that it's tighter than the stock to flow model that is much simpler or do you think it's a little bit uh, looser? It's a relative and a shorter time frame model I look at. Like the stock to flow, you can see it varies, right? It's a theoretical, and, but it doesn't look at like the details. It doesn't look at how much is the real flow coming out because how much of that flow we thought was flow was from miners is actually now being hodled by miners. So it doesn't take that into account. So it's much more broad brushed, but it gives you absolute numbers because it's comparing its stock to flow to with the cross asset model, it's comparing it to gold. And so it does give you this, and, and with the standard model, it's comparing to the last 12 years of history or more we've had. It's getting, uh, it's, it gives you better absolute numbers. What I'm doing here, it gives you more relative, like I can say we're entering a phase now for the next six months or more of bullish numbers. And then if we're ever in a, um, like a bear market, I can actually get a price model that goes, okay, now we're, we're retracing down into a demand and supply metric that we once crossed, you know, three months ago, four months ago, and we can look at how the market valued it back then and go, well, that's where it should be if the market was feeling the same way about it. And so it can give you much um, more precise um, numbers compared to stock to flow. When we were down at, I guess, 35 to 40,000 a few months ago, but see, look, this whole thing's out of balance. We're totally in balance right now with the underlying demand was huge, was like, no, everyone was bearish, yet this model was saying we needed to get to mid 55, about 55,000, mid 50s, to find balance again and, and retrace to the prices that the market liked to value it back in um, back a few months ago, back early 2021. And, um, you know, and it, all it took was um, the fears to be shaken off and we, we quickly reverted back there. So, you know, it's useful for these shorter time things. I, I find it more useful as an investor investing, um, you know, I'm constantly buying and I'm sometimes selling, but mainly I'm buying and I'm like, I need the confidence of where this thing's going to go over the next six months rather than where it's going to go over the, you know, the next four years. Um, though I think maybe has got some new models there that's a little bit closer to the you know, like monthly models rather than the full broad macro. But yeah, it's, it's quite different. I think it's, you're more able to take a position, hold it for maybe six months and then get out using these kind of models. It's more suited to like a swing trader, I would say, and, and a long-term investor who's looking to buy the dip in the best possible time. Maybe you're a CEO of a corporate and um, you want to enter and, have, and look good over the next six months without too much shareholder pushback. Hey, Willie, I want to talk about a chart. And for people that are watching this on YouTube, they're going to be able to see the chart because hopefully my, my editors are going to have this pulled up on the screen. But describe it for people that are maybe just listening to the audio. The title of the chart is Bitcoin Long-Term Holder Supply Shock. When I'm looking at this chart, it's kind of insane because down there on the bottom where you have it listed as peak accumulation, this thing is peaking out. You're seeing some of the highest levels that you've ever had for peak accumulation. And here we are, what is it, almost a year and a half post-having, and you're seeing the highest peak accumulation number that you've ever seen on the chart, and which has typically been core, you know, sequenced with big sell-offs in, historically, or like bottom of, of the market during the four-year cycle. So what in the world does this mean? And just give us a little bit more context on the chart. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, there's a whole series of these metrics which I've, I've labeled supply shock. And this is the equivalent of on-chain demand and supply. It's an alternative to stock to flow. It's an on-chain model. And we're looking on-chain for different ways in which to measure demand, which demand is like if you're holding Bitcoin every day, you're saying that's huddle demand. I'm holding it. I want exposure to the asset. And um, we look at coins that may potentially be supply. These are the coins that aren't locked up in long-term holding situations. They look likely they may be sold. So you can run the ratio between demand and supply. So those guys that aren't selling are on the demand side and the guys that might be selling are on the supply side. And you get a whole family of supply shop metrics. Like, And Will Clemente was the first to suggest this in running this ratio. And like, he suggested doing it on this thing that Glassnode created called liquid supply. Now, this metric was... You know, I, I talked to them and asked them if they could create something that could look at the behavior of individual holders um, and their, their history so that we could kind of validate what was happening on exchanges. We were seeing that the coins we were starting to deplete out of the exchanges and move into long-term storage. But I really wanted something that was more um, forensically accurate than just exchanges because exchanges are very reliant on you tagging particular wallets as being owned by exchanges and there's a lot of data errors. So they created this metric and it's called liquid supply. And it looks back and it goes, all right, for this cluster of wallet address spaces, because on the blockchain, obviously you only see addresses, you don't know who it is. They forensically cluster all of these address spaces together and they resolve them to individual holders. Now you've got the individual holders, you look back across their wallet history and you go, okay, there's three categorization. There's the, the, what I call the Rick Astley, you know, the guy that just keeps stacking and does not sell. They, for every three Bitcoins that's bought, no more than one Bitcoin moves out of or sold. So anything that's stronger than that is what you call like illiquid. They're not selling. And then you've got two other tiers which get more and more liquid. The highly liquid side is just totally nets out to zero consistently. So they're full-on speculators. And then you've got the middle kind of swing tradery part hodly guy. So you can run these supply shocks and you, you get the original um, liquid supply shock. And, and that's, um, that's a very good metric, even down into trading five day, a five-day you know, sort of swing. And then you've got this, what we're looking at here, which is the long-term holder supply shock. And um, if you were to look into wallets and, um, you know, because as coins enter a wallet, they kind of age like, you know, fine wine. And it's like you can measure how long the coin stays inside the wallet. And there's a probability distribution that you can see. Like if this coin is dropped into a wallet and it's been there for one day, you know, statistically, the probability of it moving tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the next day. And it just starts to drop slowly and decay. But at five months of age, there's a cliff and it, it, the behavior starts changing. It's like it starts to drop off a cliff. And, you know, if a coin can stay in a wallet for five months or more, it's very unlikely there's a sea change in action that now starts to become more likely not to be sold and held for years and years and years. So. This thing takes obviously five months for you to reach that. So it's quite a smooth, reliable metric for the macro. And what we're doing here is running the demand supply over this definition of what is our, um, on the demand, which is hodling, and what's in the supply, which is the um, probability, higher probability of selling. And it's a very clean chart, right? And where you see a peak in hodlers versus the potential the hodlers that are potentially going to sell coins that are under five months aging that's always the bottom it's always the bottom of a bear mark and an accumulation phase or a reaccumulation phase having you know pulled back from a prior run and we're, we're in that right now and once we're at and we're at peak right we're, we're at peak is it rounding out? I, I, I can't tell from the chart whether that's rounding out or is it still going higher? 
it started to round out, but it, we only had like a week or so of data to, it looks about right. It looks about where we'll round out. And um, generally we stay at peak levels. Generally we stay at peak levels for a few months, but you can't rely on that. What actually is happening is these guys that have these coins that have aged more than five months, they start to settle once we get a very, very strong rally. And then you'll start to see this number start to decline. And you would have seen this in you would have seen this in the last run up from ten thousand to sixty thousand from fourth quarter of last year that we saw like effectively the the last generation of those those long term holders start to sell down and these new guys came in to buy, right? It's those guys, you know, the they were high net worth purchases. They were like um, family offices, um, high net worth individuals. They were buying like significant, like $1 million exposure at a time. So they, they went like retail and they were buying and buying and buying. And that's why we're in peak right now because it's been five months since they bought in. The last wave of those long-term holders sold to them. And so we're, we're at that point now. They've aged. Like all the new guys we brought in in the first half of this year are now these long-term holders and they're at peak. And so they're, gonna, they're providing the lockup that's necessary to drive us into the, um, you know, the six figure. You know, I'm pretty certain that we're going to go past six figures in Bitcoin in the next, I can't say which month, but in the next six months, looking at this demand and supply um, structure, it's what? Another 50% climb will be there. I think we're going to do that pretty, cert- almost certainly over the next six months, probably much sooner. It could be in a month or two or a week or two, the <laughs> way things are going. But this is a high reliability metric to say, we are in for a bull run for the next six months or even longer. It could go for another year. So it's a very good time to be accumulating that we've just coming out of this reaccumulation phase and can see that on chain very, very clearly. As we did this dip, it was an accumulation. It was not a bear market. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I know I just sent you uh, Dylan LeClaire's version of of this chart, which is different than yours. We're going to put it up on the screen for people that are listening to this on YouTube. But Dylan titles his cost basis ratio of long-term versus uh, short-term holders. And when that metric is appreciating or going up, it's indicating a, a long, hold it long. And then when it's declining, it's, it's showing that you probably want to either hold or you know, if you're a trader, you'd be, you'd be uh, selling it and trying to buy back in. And when I'm looking at the, which is not what I recommend, by the way, 
I just recommend people buying it. I'm a long-term value investor of, of Bitcoin. I'm sure people get a chuckle out of that. But when I'm looking at this chart and I'm looking at the historical calls that it would have made, it's kind of mind-blowing. And for people that are watching this, this chart literally just turned green today, representing that we're getting ready to go on a big bull run, just like Willie represented, or like uh, Willie just said. So Willie, my question for you, is there is there anything else that you won the highlight about this chart that might be different than yours? I know I just kind of plopped it on you without having much time to kind of review it. This chart is um, more, um, my understanding of it is correct. It's, it's new to me. and I don't know the exact calculations underneath, but it is using the price domain of um, these two, whereas I'm using the supply domain. Um, how much of the supply is locked up? So therefore it's you know, demand and supply, but this is more looking at a ratio of you know the the cost basis in which these two cohorts are um, are ratioing at each other and and like I know it's a very clean chart because it, it picks tops and bottoms of bullish and bearish phases relatively reliably. It doesn't get it's a little bit delayed. I think it takes a bit of time for the price to move downwards or upwards, and then it relies on the holders actually transacting coins in relation to it. So you know that. A lot of times you see the price drop and there's no coins being transacted because no one's being shook out of the, the market. And this is looking at the price coming down and that compounded with actual investor behavior selling down or buying at the bottoms. And so it's neat because it's a nice um, way of defining with on-chain metrics that this is a bearish phase and this is a bullish phase. Now, red is like a bear phase. And green is a bull phase. And, you know, it's unlike the Wall Street definitions that are very fluffy. Like, what is it? It's, is it like a, um, do you know, Kristen? It's like, is it a 20% pullback within a time frame? I think two months or longer or something. That's close. Definition. Yeah. I don't know the is definition it, either, but it's something like what you just described. I just don't like it because, particularly in Bitcoin, we're in such a volatile asset and the price can go anywhere. And it's, and it doesn't like we know whether or not this is a buying or selling. And now we're looking at this and saying, okay, on chain, it's structured as a bull or a bear market. And that's what I really love about this. And then second thing to, to, to pull out of this is, you know, the chart I'm looking at right now, um, 2012 to 2000 and almost 22. So almost 10 years in there, we've got two full blown Bitcoin bear markets, right? You can define that as like a year or so of um, bearish structure. And we've got that there. And then in there, we've had three additional red strips, which were, look, that showed bearishness. But they only showed bearishness over no more than like, like a quarter, quarter, maybe yeah, maybe two maybe quarters. six months or so. Yeah. We had that in 2013 with in the double pump where it shot up and then it went sideways to reaccumulate. So that, that red strip is picking up the bearishness, but it was a reaccumulation phase. And so... Like we had that in that kind of 2019 to 2020 era where Bitcoin chopped around and we had COVID and it, was, it just went sideways for a very long time at around the 10,000 range. And then we had that just recently, which has just ended as of today, I think, where we pulled back from our 50, 60,000 trading range down into as low as 29,000. And now we're back up there again and above it. I got a question for you on this though. When we look at this run that we're getting ready to go on, let's say that what, what you're suggesting that it's going to run for the next six months or in the next quarter or two, let's say that that starts playing out. Let's say we go into six figures on the fiat denominator or the fiat value of Bitcoin. Would a metric like this continue to hold up in your opinion for people that maybe want to take a pause or they want to take some chips off the table and pay down a house or whatever it might be. Everybody's got their, their reasons for, for why they want to do what they want to do with their resources at various points in time. But would this metric help provide them, hey, yeah, we're probably going into a bear market for, for at least three months or, or whatever it might be. Would that continue to work into the future, in your opinion? I don't know if it's something you want to use for price signaling. Like If you can just look at it right now, and like, it's said to sell at about 50000 and now it's it just turned green today, which is sixty five thousand. As I'm looking at the price right now, so it would have told you to sell low and buy high because you wait because it's a little bit laggy. 
but it's really telling me the structure of the market that we've been in reaccumulation um, in these these strips. So I'm I'm liking it as a sort of a big zoomed out structure of the market, and it, it's now we've got you know two small red strips, no more than way not even close to a year each, and um, I think that's actually the sign of what's coming. These these big four year cycles are ending. So that's what I'm curious about. I wouldn't necessarily just use when it goes green, it's very safe to buy. I mean, I'd use just, it as a buy-in. Just thing. stop selling is what you're saying. Yeah, this <laughs> never sell a exponentially growing asset, but the green signals are a good time to enter. Like if you're scared of big large script drawdowns, buy in the green zone and hold. Just I wouldn't trade it to to sell high and buy low using the red zones cuz that's not very reliable. Hey Willie, let's change subjects here. So you had a couple comments on the ETFs earlier. Uh, you were talking about Contango. This is something that I was kind of jumping up and down about at the beginning of this bull run. Obviously, the Contango disappeared whenever we went into the big sell-off that we had with the, with the mining reorg and everything that was happening. But now that the bull market's starting to pick back up again, especially now that you have these futures settled ETFs, I think this Contango thing is going to be the, a really big talking point for the next six months. When you have such a high return cash carry trade in place, I just can't imagine what that's doing for participation in this market. I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on just the ETF in general and what you think it might mean moving into the next six months. It's really interesting now because you've got this ETF, which is futures-based. So in theory, you can, um, you can buy more than 21 million Bitcoins. That's the starter. You can buy more than 21 million Bitcoins through ETF exposure. Of course, the underlying doesn't change. Um, in a futures market, you can trade to infinity. As long as you can find someone on the other side that's going to sell you that paper contract. And Which has no impact on the underlying Bitcoin protocol if you're dealing in spot. No, it doesn't. It doesn't inflate the coin supply, but it's just interesting. So now imagine a sovereign nation state. So I want to deploy um, more. It's just an interesting metric. If they want to manipulate the price, they can put larger gyrations or more volatility into the spot price. But can they do it at any type of duration, I think is the real question. We see this in the gold market where it's consistently being suppressed by, by the derivative markets. Um, so and even since as early as 2018 with BitMEX being around, we could see the, the impact of these derivative markets. So it's kind of a net negative, I think, um, for Bitcoin. If I was going to push back, the really big difference is that you can immediately settle physically at any moment. And the exchanges around the world that allow you to do that are just unbound. Relative to a gold market, if you want to take physical settlement, it's extremely difficult. If I was going to do that and I wanted to you know, buy a substantial amount of gold and physically settle, you're not doing it immediately. And um, you're not doing it with the liquidity that you're seeing on these spot exchanges. So if if let's just let's just pull the thread on that scenario that you described. Let's say that there is a state actor that's trying to cause mass volatility into this market. I think because of the construct of how much spot availability, liquidity, access there is for immediate settlement straight into my hardware wallet, people that understand this are going to totally take advantage of that. I think what you're saying is you, you can leverage or use the liquidity on um, futures exchange to, to effectively um, buy in. Um, so you know, it's maybe five times more liquid, so you can buy a position size six times your, uh, what you could um, without moving the price as much. That is a, that's a positive. Obviously, like the one, the ETF, the ETF is going to increase the derivatives dominance, the volumes on the um, derivative exchanges. That is a, on the CME, which is not physically settled, it is settled in cash. So if, if you wanted to buy in, you'd still need to like, well, you'd, you'd do it on offshore exchanges, which are physically settled. I'm, I'm thinking... Anybody yeah, who this, truly understands what this is, is not going to take a paper contract for this. They're going to take the physically settled Bitcoin. But you might take the paper contract temporarily whilst you 
fill your spot position, right? So if I'm going to buy um, like a billion dollars of Bitcoin, I'm not going to dump it in the spot markets. I might buy 200 million on spot markets and I'll buy the rest on derivatives because I can deploy right now. And then the price is going to run up, but I'm fine because I've locked in my price in that one hit. So I'm getting a cash settled profit. I take the cash sale profit, I pull it over to Binance, FTX, some of the offshore exchanges, which physically um, trade. You can even do it on Coinbase, right? You just buy it on Coinbase using your cash profits. For a proxy, you can physically settle. And that's relatively easy to do. It's not the same as like maybe the futures of gold where you get cash and now you've got to still find the supplier that's going to sell you that gold. And they have huge spreads, whereas the spread on spot is so tight. I think the other piece too, so in your example that you just used, I go out and I would buy 200 million of the spot and physically settle. The other would be paper. If the person was truly concerned as to their ability to get the full billion worth in the physical, they'd step into the market, they'd bid the price, and they could, they could capture all the physical. Even though they know that, that they would probably move the market way more aggressively, they could still do it. Price would go nuts. You can capture all the Bitcoins on exchanges, but you can't capture all the Bitcoins. It comes back to physics, right? Yeah. <laughs> if they're yeah. not available to be sold, you can't capture it all. So you think so that there's limitations there, just based on how much do the exchanges have to offer. But think about yeah, how much, think about how much inventory. Available. There'd be so much inventory yeah, that would come in if the price went parabolic like that in, in a short amount of time. Yeah. I think you, you, you eventually do incentivize for that. Um, but I think at a certain point, you can't because you don't have enough um, monetary base to buy it in because the, you know, as, as Bitcoin's value is going up, it's capturing more of the monetary base. Like we're at $1 trillion And let's say Fiat's monetary base is $100 trillion. It's 1%. So at a certain point, you don't have enough Fiat monetary base to buy the Bitcoin. So you, you just can't capture all of it. You run into systemic maximums when you start to look at, you know, you build a big box around the whole system. You go, well, that's, that's our system. There's the cash, there's the Bitcoin. For people listening to the conversation that Willie and I just had that are not like financiers or anything like that, the reason that we're like pulling the thread on this is because in traditional markets, especially in gold, there's this idea that the gold market is highly manipulated because there's so much cash settled uh, derivatives, future based derivatives, that it can suppress the price of gold. There's many arguments about this. And so people in the Bitcoin space have been concerned that because they're offering this future settled derivatives product with the, with the ETF that's coming out, that there might be an attempt by a sovereign nation or whoever to be able to suppress the price action of Bitcoin through these derivative products. And so that's why Willie and I are going down this rabbit hole of, of back and forth for people that might be listening to this, but like, what are they talking about? That's what we're, we're trying to just understand that at more depth. Yeah. And I think if we were to move back to the ETF, um, the futures-based ETF conversation, I do think that, you know, like Preston, you were talking about this whole cash and carry trade. And that being this big black hole engine that um, sucks in more and more capital. I, I can see that. That's interesting because- like, You want to push a, back on this and I like it. Go ahead. Let's it's, hear it. <laughs> it's, I can see what you're saying because there's a lot of long demand. There's a lot of speculative demand on Bitcoin and therefore you can like, you know, it, it draws in the, the cash and carry hedge funds that come in to have to buy the underlying to be able to extract the yield. If you're over collateralizing on the lending and the borrowing and lending, then that was kind of the angle that I was going at the start of the year whenever we were talking about this a lot. But from what I understand, a lot of institutions are not being, they're basically not playing by the rules that the retail borrowers and lenders are, are playing by as far as the over collateralization, is my understanding. So you're saying that they don't have to um, hold the Bitcoins by the same amount of spot? So like when a retail person's going out and doing these LTVs of 70 or 50 or whatever it is, they're putting a whole lot more immediately settled crypto, whether that's USDC or Bitcoin or whatever, into escrow in order to conduct that, that uh, loan. 
But if you're an institution, they're letting them under collateralize that borrowing because they're considered way more trustworthy. So in that scenario, I don't know that you necessarily get the full implications of of what I was trying to say, which was like locking up coins. Oh, I see. I see. I see what you're saying now. So it's really the the over collateralization ethic. So you were betting on this guy that's going to put in two Bitcoins to borrow one Bitcoin. Yes. Um, And then the hedge fund would then also match that with one Bitcoin. So you're actually getting three Bitcoins into two that's being bought through that system. Right. Interesting. I I don't know. It's like we need to see um, this really play out. I don't think these lines of credits where you under collateralize is, I don't think that's necessarily widespread. Uh, Do you have better information than me? Like, no. I think that majority of them (laughs) actually, I'm involved with hedge funds and sometimes you can get a line of credit. You still have to collateralize, but it's very seldom. I mean, there's more and more of these hedge funds coming out now, and it's not like um, exchange is going to give you that line of credit willy-nilly anymore. We are seeing things like loan providers that will lend you cash without um, collateral. And so that's kind of doing the same thing. So to do that, you have to have very good reputation. You, You have to have been around for years and shown you've got a history of operating well. So Maybe, but I don't think that's the majority of the market. Uh, maybe we're seeing maybe 10, 20% under collateralization from these, these institutions. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-35. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Truly, Willie, this is one of my biggest concerns as all of this would really heat up. Like here in the States, you can go to like this FTX exchange and you can deposit Bitcoin and you can start making 5%. You just immediately, it just starts streaming you interest on that exchange. And I think when you look at your uneducated investors that are just having massive returns, they're making deposits on these exchanges, they're getting these kinds of interest rates, 
and let's say the Bitcoin price really runs. Let's say we're at like $200,000 Bitcoin. Everyone and their kid sister is talking about this. Everyone and their kid sister is making deposits onto these exchanges, making what I would call real interest rates. The whole planet has been starved from any type of interest rate for a long time. This is looking like you're in a different universe to be receiving these types of yields and interest rates. My concern is if the traditional market starts to look at this and this gets so big, everyone's going to be like, oh my God, this is literally ripping the face off of like traditional finance and traditional interest rates. And then you're looking at this whole different calculation on the value of everything. Now, if the institutional borrowers and lenders are not over collateralized in this market where this yield is being generated and they have counterparty risk, right? Because these these big institutions that are that are borrowing and doing these activities that are that are quote unquote low risk, right? That don't have to over collateralize because they're a trusted agent. They have other things on their books. Everybody knows that. And if the price of that equity or whatever those quote unquote assets are that are marked to market in the in the old world of finance at 30x or 35x capitalization rates to earnings, all of a sudden come and get drop down to 10 or 15 or whatever that math would become, and you have them get repriced mark to market based on different multiples because there's this realization that everybody's been duped into thinking that interest rates are nothing percent. All of a sudden, those institutional buyers become enormous risks to the overall market. In these, in these massive platforms like and I'm not saying FTX specifically. You can, you can name any one of these borrowing lenders as far as I'm concerned because they're all competitively trying to capture clients and they're trying to capture clients by offering high yields, as, as high of a yield as they possibly can. And so my concern is that and what that might mean in that space. And I think, I guess my whole point of, of saying all this is it's really important that people know how to take self-custody of their coins, because if things start getting a little squirrely in the equity markets and you're seeing things sell off and maybe get repriced and all that stuff that I just described, the last place you want your coins to be sitting is on an exchange you know, squeaking out 5% yield because, and you're sitting there with all this other risk that you have no clue of because of all the institutions that are borrowing and lending. Yeah, it's. Um, let me have a look today. Let's. I think it's. Uh, it's squeaking out seventeen percent yield as of today. It just jumped again the last two days with this well, huge run up. Let's say that goes more, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let's just say that that contango yeah. gets gets crazier, right? Do you think yeah. these platforms are going to increase their their yields to capture more customers? For them to increase their yields. Most of these exchanges aren't doing fixed yield, they're providing lending markets. And then these, again, like people and, and institutions that are running arbitrage from Contango to spot loaning, um, you run that arbitrage funding trade, and then you get the, this loosely coupled, the futures Contango impacts the, the lending. But to your point, it's really, so effectively, this is the, the domino if, you know, of House of Cards if, if it plays out is the funds, the, the, the institutions that are playing these trades are um, getting lines of credit based on you know, some amount of trust and some assets in their books that may not be priced properly. If they turn out to be toxic, then they cannot um, cover their losses on if they make a loss first. If they make a loss and they cannot cover their losses, and that line of credit, then the exchange is up for it. And then the risk to the retail person who's got money on exchanges lending their coins out is if the exchange hasn't got enough asset backing to cover the loss on the line of credit, which they didn't take any collateral on. So there is um, certain things that need to happen. Like you need to blow out these institutions that are trading with lines of credit. They need to have toxic assets they need to also trade very badly. Now, we're talking about cash and carry trades. We're talking about delta neutral trades, what we call. They're relatively low risk unless they break, like their, their algos break or something like that. But generally, if you look at like a 36-month history of these funds, they don't put in a down month. If they do put in a down month, it's just like you're relatively small because they shut down their algos. Um, so that risk is actually low. If we're talking, they're not doing the same ridiculous trades that we're seeing, um, you know, the banking 
institutions did in 2008 and before that. Um, they were taking very large risks. Um, in fact, they bought up trading firms that were very good at taking large risks. Goldman Sachs was the first, and then everyone else copied them. And so I actually spoke to the guy that was acquired into Goldman Sachs that did this high-risk trading, and they understood risk very well. The problem was these other banks said, whoa, that's like more than half the profit of Goldman. We're going to copy them. And they started doing the same thing with very little understanding of the same risks. And that is markets in general, right? Like What you're describing there is, is perfect for anybody to understand how things get out of control at the end of a cycle. Yeah, right. And it's currently like we're, we're talking specifically on these kinds of lines of credit for um, kind of cash and carry type trades is very low risk. And if they, they have to blow up their assets that are off the books, they've got to blow up their trades. And then that's got to be big enough to blow up the exchange. So I think the, the risks involved with that in the current state of crypto, it's very young, it's very early. It's not like very early. Where- yeah. decades old where banks are getting so greedy, they're squeezing out every last dollar and they don't know where to get the next dollar from, apart from taking huge risks. We're not in that stage in crypto. Not even close. Right now. Yeah, not even not, close not to close. that. It's new, right? It's the, it's the old world that's blowing up. What I tell friends and family, if they, they ask me all the time, like, well, you know, so-and-so is making this yield on this exchange or, or whatever it is. I'm like, hey, you know what? Like me personally, if you want to do that, you know, have at it. But this is what I'll tell you. If you start to see a lot of headlines and you start to see the news that interest rates are all out of whack and they're comparing it to the yields that are being achieved inside of the, the crypto economy or the digital asset economy, and people are talking about the repricing of equity based on these interest rates, like you might want to start clawing everything out of the exchanges. You have no idea what exchanges it's going to be. I'd make a nuanced point. Well, when we're talking 17% today on lend-out rates, um, that's nuanced, right? The lend-out rate on Bitcoin today is 3%, and usually it's 0.8%. Uh, I'm not talking about putting your Bitcoin on exchanges lending out. I'm talking about putting your US dollars on exchanges mm-hmm. and lending that out Yeah, 17%. And that's a different proposition because what am I doing right now is it would be in a cash account with a bank who I trust even less. Because the banks are the ones that I think are going to go out of business, not the new finance. Totally. They've got bail-in clauses over 100 grand. Anything over 100 grand they can take. And I can't move it. Moving any kind of significant funds in a bank gets blocked. So the first thing I want to do when I get cash in the bank is get it out of the bank. And even though I want exposure to cash for just the sheer liquidity, a certain amount of safety net if the volatility of Bitcoin is down over a month, I'll, I'll move it into exchange. I'll move it into exchange and I'll lend it out for 70%. And then I can move it in US stable coins like USDC to fund investments. Like most um, of the investments that I'm doing now take USDC. Even an exchange that I'm, I'm working with, they, they're, uh, they take USDC. And even, even AngelList, if you're doing angel um, investments, they take USDC now. So like, it's like the traditional side of divide, the banking divide is like quicksand for my money to be stuck. And the first thing I do is I move it into this new speed of light finance where I can move dollars across a blockchain in, in seconds and not get blocked and get yields of 17% every second that it's being packed. It's just worlds different. And the risks aren't anymore. If we're talking US dollars, we're talking US dollars, the alternative is the risk of your money being in the bank. So I think that's a different proposition. So Jack recently tweeted about considering building a Bitcoin mining system based on uh, custom silicon and open source software. I know you had some comments back to him. What are your thoughts on the idea and why is it important? I think it's fabulous. I mean, fundamentally, the idea is to decentralize the mining network. And if you can get individuals that are mining it in their homes, that's maximum security and decentralization of, of this network. Um, my comment to him was he, he, he talked about the, um, the kind of efficiency of the network. You want to be efficient on electricity, um, which is it's an it's a easy trap to get into because uh, you don't need efficient hardware, but you know, the incentives are going to push for more and more efficiency. But 
as you get these devices that become more and more efficient, well, it just means I need less dollars to run to produce the same hash rate. So, you know, it's the incentives just work out that um, the amount of electricity that's going to protect the network is going to be a cost correlation to the price of Bitcoin. It's how much electricity am I going to burn to protect the network to how much is that network worth? And so that is always going to be the correlation. And if your hardware is more efficient, well, I need more of the hardware to burn the same amount of electricity. That's not the right view, what, way to look at it. The, the, I think the way you want to look at it is to extend the um, hardware cycle. Like it used to be, um, if you're mining Bitcoin a few years back, the shelf life hardware might be nine months before the next ASIAC generation would come in and it would obsolete you. And so you had this huge waste issue. But more than that, like you had mining operators that would fly and charter a 747, load up with miners, and then fly it to their location to save maybe 36 hours in transit because the shelf life on that hardware was ticking. And it ended up being millions of dollars of lost revenue because of the, um, of the, the shelf life of that hardware. Now we're getting to these nanometer um, sort of scaled chips that are like down near the, to the frontier of what we can produce. And so these, the shelf life of these, these new ASICs are um, longer. And that's what you want because the longer the shelf life of this, this hardware before it goes obsolete, the more retail can come in because retail is not efficient. There's not many people I know as a retailer that can fly to the manufacturer and then um, bring it back in person like a, a highly you know, centralized mining facility can do. So like, um, I think more and more development into um, hardware like this will push these cycles out further. And that's going to help more retailers come into the mining. And then that's going to also decentralize the network. And it's also going to decentralize where you can capture the energy. You know, when you're very highly concentrated, you want to be parked next to a hydroelectric dam and a nuclear power station. When you're wanting um, to small scale mine, you, you can be anywhere in the world with our good sunlight where I'm next to a stream. And so the, the decentralizes that part of it. So yeah, it's, it's ultimately good and pushing to get this network more and more decentralized because as you get this, this network more decentralized, we effectively create um, a monetary base that's similar to gold, but without the flaws. And remember, the flaws on gold is that it's held in a very centralized manner. And so a centralized gold leads to fiat. Um, we saw that in, in um, 1971 when the, the, we decoupled off gold because the guys that were meant to have gold didn't. It was, they didn't, so they decoupled. And so we need the holders of Bitcoin to be very decentralized. And part of that means every aspect of this network needs to be decentralized because um, if you get any single centralized choke point, then you can start to control that asset. And then any central point um, that gets big enough can push us into a new era of fiat. So yeah, that ultimately it's a, it's a good initiative. Willie, I don't have anything else. Is there, any, uh, is there anything that's hot right now that you want to talk about? People probably don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a general partner in three hedge funds in crypto, and I'm an analyst, right? And it's really interesting to me because when we talk about risk, you know, like the standard metric for risk is sharp ratio, um, which is essentially your returns divided by the volatility of returns. And like, we run this thing called, like, to, to the, the volatility is using, you know, a standard deviation calculation. And I've just realized, you know, sharp's cracked because it punishes up upward volatility if bitcoin moons the risk increases where it's you know yeah, you only yeah, really yeah. want to count downside risk so there's this thing called sortino right which is like let's remove all the upside and every day it puts in a down day let's take that as a sample point and look at the volatility of the downward side i love where you're going with this <laughs> and this is like sortino it's much better if you're going to run a fund to track on sortino and I just realized today, because I'm running optimization um, algos to, to the fund, and I'm like going, Sotino's crap as well. Because if you were to think about the downside risks, and then you run a standard deviation, you know, volatility calculation on the downside, it assumes um, it's going to be a normal curve. But it's not, right? It's going to be a normal curve around the high mean return. 
and we're just going to do a cutoff of anything that's negative and um, we're going to try and think that that's going to behave in a normal like probability distribution that's normal it's not um, so I'm just fabriclasted that these all these metrics that the traditional world has been using they're fundamentally broken yes but, but like like um how we understand risk is in, in traditional markets and only crypto has got me into these markets and I'm saying to you've got these wild assets and you go well that's not going to work because it's upside volatility that's not risk that's just a huge reward and now let's try and get and get a better metric and what Wall Street's got is like pretty crappy um so that's my takeaway this week um, is, um, <laughs> I'm running, running these metrics through algorithms and they're giving substandard results. And I think where there's room to improve these metrics. So I haven't been tweeting much because I've been deep in the rabbit hole of looking at the stuff. And it's just, yeah, eye-openingly bad what we've got out there. That's something that Buffett would always bag on at shareholder meetings was how much disdain he had for the sharp ratio. Because yeah, when right. you're talking about equity, you're talking about like, what is your risk? Well, your risk is really kind of like losing your competitive moat or your ability to, to price or a network effect or whatever that might be, an impairment of the underlying assets of the business. Your risk isn't the fact that the price had these large gyrations that you could leverage and actually buy whenever it would go in the direction that you feel isn't in keeping with the fundamental value that, the company, that you think the company's worth. So he would describe that volatility as your opportunity and your real risk is whether your assets are becoming impaired or not. And so it's funny that you know you go to any business school, they're teaching you that risk is that volatility. I mean, he's, he's taking one step further because he's adding human intelligence and a qualitative view of what risk yeah, really is. No doubt about um, it. But even if we were to go to a quant world and be like a renaissance, um, I'm sure they don't use these crappy metrics. That, that like, no, like I ran the optimization algo on the fund and I did it on Sharp. And it was like, it's rock solid return, very low return. And then like our fund manager did a qualitative pick based on knowing what was underneath these funds. And it just blew it out of the proportion. Like it was like overperformed every time. The, the Sharp um, optimized thing tried to get everything rock solid and not move. And then you run Sortino and it's a little bit better but it still didn't beat the human thing, you know? So um, it needed a new type of um, risk metric, which I I've mean, done now, and it's much better. At it's the like, end of the day, the risk is, is the network effect of Bitcoin becoming impaired by some other protocol? Is there, yes. like, those are the real risks. It's going to be the qualitative thing. It's going to yeah. be Michael Saylor type analysis. Yes. You know that this is good. You look at, using human intelligence, not just all these kind of kind of Paul Kruger saying it's too volatile. This sort of stuff just doesn't fly. It's just the wrong way to look at this asset. Totally agree. Willie, this is what I want to tell you. I really appreciate these conversations. When I think of a person who just has some of the deepest critical thinking in the space, like you're at the top of the list, man. And uh, I just really appreciate you making time to come on and have this conversation with me because I know I really value just the conversation. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Preston. I really enjoyed this podcast even from before um, I, you were inside crypto. And um, I mean, I'm still like listening to the old episodes of We Study Billionaires. <laughs> and I'm like, I listened to the one with Charlie Munger and um, Warren Buffett and how you did commentary over it. So it's such um, deep knowledge in these other, you know, value investing. Thank you so like, oh, much. This is great stuff. So I'm still getting great value from this Thank podcast. I'm super happy to be part of it now, now that it's inside crypto. Thank you so much, Willie. Hey, you got a newsletter. Anything else you want to uh, highlight to folks that we'll have in the, in the show notes? Yeah, um, so I've got a newsletter. You can just go to my Twitter profile. I think everyone knows it's Woonomic. Um, it's linked there. So I do like, you know, now it seems like one or two times a week, I do um, on-chain structure and demand supply forecasting Bitcoins, you know, next few weeks to months ahead. So it's, it's, it's great if you're an investor and looking, you know, just to, to take some of the anxiety off with these wild moves. Yeah, so that's the newsletter I write. And uh, yeah, that's... That's pretty much all I, I, I run these days um, and something that you know, people can, can actually action on. So just go to my Twitter profile and that's about it, really. Willie, 
Thanks so much for joining me, and uh, I look forward to the next time we're able to do this. Sounds great. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.